Welcome to the 105th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with crime writer Eric Beatner, author of the new noir novel, The Devil Doesn't Want Me, and lots of other novels and stories. Stay tuned for the interview. I also just wanted to make a quick request. I've asked this before, so I'll keep it short. If you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the interviews, if you could just leave a review on iTunes, it would be a huge help. Thanks, and stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Eric Beatner. Eric is the author of several crime and noir novels. His latest novel, The Devil Doesn't Want Me, is published as an ebook by a new Dutton imprint, Gilt-Edged Mysteries. Eric's other novels include Fight Card and novels that he co-wrote with J.B. Cole, One Too Many Blows to the Head, and Borrowed Trouble. He has also written many crime short stories as well. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Sure, sure. Well, as we start out, can I have you read the first three or four paragraphs of your new novel, The Devil Doesn't Want Me? Absolutely. Here we go. Seventeen years is a long damn time. A long damn time. That's how long Lars had been on the hunt for Mitchell Kenny. Mitch the snitch, Mitch the bitch. The former accountant gathered up quite a few nicknames since turning state's evidence 17 years ago. Lars spent his fair share of time in cemeteries over the years, and he knew the headstones didn't lie. Tempest fugit, motherfuckers. Those old Latin bastards were smart. Now I'm being replaced, he thought as he stared down into his beer glass. I guess my time has flown. The air in the bar tasted stale, equal parts nicotine and sweat. If bad breath had an address, directions would lead you here. Lars sat alone at the bar, allowing himself his weekly drink. On the job, Lars had rules. Sticking to them was how he kept getting more jobs. Doing those jobs well was how he got this one. Nicky Sr. himself picked Lars, said he needed a man he could trust. A special job requiring a special man. And that's Great. that's Lars. <laughs> Great. Well, if the listeners haven't heard of The Devil Doesn't Want Me yet, can you describe the novel for them? Sure. I am I am the worst at giving out spoilers. I don't want anyone to know anything that might ruin any kind of surprise. So I'll give you a, a, a brief sketch of, of, the very, of the very basics. But it's about uh, this character, Lars, who is a hitman for a prominent East Coast crime family. Uh, and he's been on this one assignment, which was to send uh, – they sent him out to get this guy, Mitchell, who had turned state's evidence against the family and now is in witness protection. So he's been on this job for the past 17 years looking for this guy uh, all over the American Southwest, uh, and he, he gets side jobs along the way. But in all that time, he's sort of been cast out on his own, and he's kind of adrift, and he's getting older. He's in his middle age. He's in, he's in his late 40s, and it, you know he's sort of ruminating over his life. But then there's changes afoot at the, in the crime family, some uh, you know, changes in management, whether they like it or not. So they send a younger replacement for Lars to, to take over the job to finally get this hit done. So when Lars comes kind of face to face with this younger generation, a guy that he thinks doesn't have any respect and doesn't have any experience, they have their clashes. But the guy shows up with some new information on how to find Mitchell. Uh, and when Lars is finally confronted face to face with the guy he's been on the hunt for for so long, 
he sort of has a realization that maybe he doesn't want to kill him anymore. And then that leads to a whole range of, of incidents. And, uh, you know, Lars has to go on the run with a, a very special uh, guest that he was not expecting to, to be taking with him. And things sort of go off the rails from there. Okay, great. Well, with a Hitman novel, you're you're really following in some big footsteps with Lawrence Block and Max Allen Collins and lots of others. When you started thinking about and writing The Devil Doesn't Want Me, did did you have any of this history and some of these other novels in mind? And, and were you kind of consciously thinking about uh, how your novel would, would differ or, or, you know, share some traits with them? Absolutely. And, and it terrified me. Uh, <laughs> those are big, big, big shoes to fill. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously the idea of a hitman is, is, has been very romanticized and, and it's a fascinating type of character. So but I think people will, will keep coming back to it. So I, I, I couldn't resist on one level. But, I, you know, hopefully Lars is a little bit different. My aesthetic for what makes an interesting crime novel and, and what makes something, you know, have that noir feel it is the guys sort of on the fringes and in the margins. Uh, you know, Lars is very good at his job. He, he's he's built up a lot of respect through his years of experience. But I personally could I could never write a novel about the world's greatest assassin and the guy who can, you know, shoot someone right through the eye from 800 yards. And, you know, I, I would never write this, the hitman who travels all over Europe and takes out the, the top diplomats. That that's, th those aren't my kind of people. So Lars is, you know, right from the very beginning, he's, he's a little bit broken down. He's a little bit uh, past his prime. So I think that's definitely one thing that makes him different. And I think the the response that I've gotten from the novel, from you know all the early readers, there's they're almost a little bit surprised that the novel has some heart to it. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> yeah, Lars, for someone who does terrible things for a living, comes off as a very sympathetic character, and that was very important to me. And and I think that that's in a way it's the mark of some of the great hitman novels i think like you mentioned max allen collins with his quarry novels you know that's that's a character who you are absolutely on his side despite what he does that we might all think is maybe not morally correct so that that, that was definitely my uh my key thing to do was to make lars someone who the reader has has sympathies for and, and can relate to right Right. So, so I'm curious about kind of your personal story. How did you get started writing fiction and what drew you to eventually to crime and war fiction? Well, I am from a, a film and TV background. I, my, my day job is, uh, is working in, in television right now. I'm a, I'm an editor and, uh, sometimes producer and, and I have written for TV before. Uh, thankfully I, I don't think you can even track that stuff down over the internet. I hope not. <laughs> Um, but so I, I, I started off as, as a film guy and I, I was a screenwriter for a number of years. Uh, so I've, I've always, and you know, ever since my early twenties, ever since college. So I've, I've written a lot of screenplays, 16 feature length screenplays, of course, nothing that ever got made. Uh, so I sort of ground through the mill of, of the Hollywood system and got spit out the other end, a little dis disillusioned and kind of sick and tired of, of, beating my head against that wall. And 
I'd always had, I think, that, that mythical vision of the novel that, that everyone kind of puts out there. Oh, it's so difficult. Oh, my gosh, a novel. Oh, you've been working on it for years. And you just have this image of people in the Upper West Side of Manhattan in tweed jackets, and, and they're sitting at their desk for two, three, four, ten years sometimes working on their masterpiece. And it just seemed too intimidating. You know, screenplays are so skeletal, and they're mostly dialogue. So, I, you know, I had gone through story and structure and pace and all that stuff many, many, many times over. But I just never felt that I had the head for all the details that you needed to write a novel. But when I seemed, you know, when I turned and and got more interested in that and and wanted to try my hand at it, uh, I I just sort of dug in and started writing. I started with short stories, as everyone should. So I wrote a bunch of those and thought, oh, yeah, well, maybe I can do this. And then when I started my first novel, I didn't tell anyone I was writing it because especially in Hollywood, the worst thing in the world <laughs> is that every waiter you meet, everybody on the street corner has a screenplay that they're working on and they'll tell you all about it, whether you asked or not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very conscious of not being that guy who's who tells you about his work in progress, but and then never finishes it because that's what happens more often than not. So. I sort of silently went about my business late at night and, you know, typed and typed and typed until I got to the end of my first novel. And I sort of said, oh, well, that wasn't so hard. I can do this. And, you know, proceeded to take that novel, put it in a drawer and no one will ever read it because it's not that good. Um, But it was the confidence that I needed to say, sure, I can do this. Let, Let me give it a shot. And then, you know, as for crime, it just happened to be the thing that, I was reading and, and, and the thing that I responded to uh, in, in, like I say, in the film world, I was always interested in, in grittier stories. I'm a huge fan of classic film noir. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in the past with the film noir foundation, which I think everyone should get involved with in, in preserving these films. And uh, you know, it's, it's great living in Los Angeles. I actually get a chance to see a lot of these classic films on the big screen and just those stories were were more interesting to me for one reason or another. Uh, and I think, you know, in screenwriting, I kind of genre hopped a lot and, and I wrote a little bit of everything. And to my detriment, I think people don't necessarily want that from a writer in a lot of cases. So when I started writing, you know, more long form fiction, I felt not that I had to pick a genre and go with it, but this was this was what interested me and. This is where my sensibilities lied, so I, you know, I wanted to to stick with it and and get known for one thing and and practice that one thing and and try to get as good as I could at it. Great. Well, you just mentioned that you you wrote and I know you've uh, published many short stories. Can you talk about some of the anthologies that you've uh, been published in, and and how do you like writing short stories compared to now uh, longer works, novels and novellas? Yeah, I've I, I love short stories. They're they're it's it's the exercise almost for for writing a novel. You know, it's like if if you if you want to run a marathon, you have to run a bunch of five Ks first, and you have to start somewhere. So it is it's it's the tremendous practice, uh, and I, a lot of writers find short stories very difficult because of the economy of words uh, to be able to tell something that has a beginning, middle, and end in such a short amount of time. It it can be very difficult. Uh, I, I love it, but 
the anthologies that I've been in, it's, it's been one of the most gratifying things. It is such an honor to be invited into a group of writers that you know and admire and love and, and to know that your story is put alongside these other great stories. It's always so exciting for me. I just got the news this week that uh, I made it into two different anthologies that'll be coming out a little later. And it's just, it, it's a thrill every single time. Uh, but you know, some of the stuff that I've been in, in the past is, is, uh, you know, just fantastic collections. Uh, there's one called Pulp Inc. Uh, that was, it now has a volume two, Pulp Inc. Two. Uh, both of those are, are fantastic collections. There's one, uh, that I did called Dict. Uh, that was it was edited by Greg Bardsley and Jedediah Ayers and Kieran Shea. That you know, Greg had emailed me and invited me into this thing. They had this crazy idea. They were going to do a, a noir anthology, and the, the inspiration was Dick Cheney, and and that was all they told us was that, that's your inspiration. Write whatever you want, and it was it was a crazy idea. So I had to be involved. So I you know I wrote. I think three, maybe four, I think I started even up to four different stories trying to think, okay, what's my take on this? And what, what, what is everybody else going to do? Oh my, you know, I felt such pressure. And then finally the, the story that I hit on and the, and the one that they published is the strangest thing I've ever written. I think by far it's, it's a story, it's called Blackheart and it's narrated by Dick Cheney's heart, uh, <laughs> which, which we all know is, is, is not healthy. And, so, uh, but that I'm, we were all kind of amazed that, uh, that that anthology didn't maybe get more attention and get picked up by news outlets, but I'm sure that everyone involved in that is probably on some kind of FBI watch list now. <laughs> uh, but you know, and, and there's, there's just, there's been so many more that I've been so lucky to be involved in off the record, uh, one and two, which is an anthology that, that benefits, uh, charities, uh, Grim Tales, which was an anthology uh, using Grimm's fairy tales as an inspiration. So I, I did a, a very, very dark take on Cinderella. <laughs> uh, you know, a Discount Noir, which the, the only prompt on that was write a story that takes place in a Walmart. Uh, so it's <laughs> it, I've I've been really, really lucky with the anthologies, and and you know, fortunately, I've I've got a few more coming out, and and I'm going to keep submitting wherever I can. That's great. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Is there a certain time of day that you write, and and what's kind of your workflow? Do you do you use Microsoft Word or other software? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I'm a night writer. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I have a day job. I have two kids, uh, so I I write between you know probably ten and one a.m. Uh, yeah, I I'd like to say I sit down and work diligently for that whole time, but I probably don't. Um, but you know, my process is just sort of to, to sit down and try to do it and try to be consistent about it. Um, I'm also, I'm not one of those guys who forces myself to write every day. Cause a lot of times I'm just tired and you know, if, if I need a day off, I'll take a day off. And, uh, so you know, I, I try not to be too, you know, working in the salt mines about it. Right. Right. But but when I do write, I, I, I write fairly quickly. I mean, you know, I, I can pretty easily knock out about two thousand words a night, even in that short time uh, when I'm when I'm really rolling. I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through uh, a new novel now that you know just really picked up pace, and I think I've done about ten thousand words in the last week. Um, so that's that's pretty good. Uh, but you know, process wise, I'm I'm an outliner. Uh, I've, I like to know where I'm going. Uh, you know, I, I outline very skeletally. 
And sometimes, you know, I'll just say, oh, he goes to her apartment will be in my outline. And then that'll, that'll turn into 6,000 words or whatever it is. Um, you know, and, and outlines are a place for me to know where I'm driving towards, but they're also very flexible. I, you know, I've, I have no qualms about changing something or, you know, a character pops up that I go, ooh, this guy's fun to write. Let's have more with him or her, you know. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I just I, I try to be as uh, treated as like a job, I guess, because because my you know, the other thing is my day job. I I love it and it's creative. I know a lot of people work a day job that's just sort of a grind and it's just a paycheck job and they need the writing as their creative outlet. And I'm incredibly fortunate to have a, a job, a day job that allows me to be creative, allows me to use that part of my brain. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I need to come home and veg out, watch a couple TV shows, stare at more screens for some reason, which is probably terrible for me. And, and then I can sit down and write the uh, darkest, most twisted things I can. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, you, I meant, sorry, go ahead. It's just my, my wife refuses to read them because they're too dark. <laughs> okay. Well, I mentioned earlier that you wrote this boxing novel, Fight Card. What, what was it about the boxing genre that, that kind of appealed to you? Yeah, I've, I've written two uh, Fight Card novellas, uh, Split Decision and uh, a sequel called The Mouthful of Blood. Uh, the, you know, boxing is is in my family. My grandfather was a professional boxer in the 1930s. Uh, he was even state champion of Iowa, middleweight division, 1932 or 35, I think. Um, so it, it's it's I grew up around boxing. Uh, you know, hearing stories and. And, you know, getting to know my grandfather and watching fights with him where he would criticize any fighter <laughs> technique. If, if Muhammad Ali was fighting on, on TV, he would have something to say about what he was doing wrong, which was funny to me. Um, and I think, you know, my the, the first novel that I got published, One Too Many Blows to the Head, uh, that I co-wrote with J.B. Cole, a fantastic writer. Um, if the character that I wrote was, is a former boxer, so it's it's around the boxing world. There's not a whole lot of you know in the ring action, but uh, Paul Bishop, who was half the team with Mel Odom, who who began the Fight Card series, uh, was aware of that book, read that book, uh, liked it, thankfully, uh, and he and I, funny enough, were working on a television project together. He was on-screen talent, and I was the supervising editor, and I, I, was, I got to go on set and do some field producing for that. And on the last day of shooting, we were on location in Chicago. He approached me. He said, hey, you don't write novels, do you? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, that is you. And we realized <laughs> that, that we had this connection. And I, so I was like, you're, you're Bish's beat? I love that website. And, and I knew his fake Croker novels. And so it, I got invited into the fight card family very early on. So Split Decision was only the third fight card uh, book that's out there. And I think now there's almost a dozen or over a dozen. It just keeps rolling on. And they're all so good. They're all such great pulp fun. Uh, you know, you don't need to be a boxing fan to like them. But uh, it, it's actually, you know, fight card is really interesting to see all the different ways that the boxing world, the wider world can be used to tell a, a noir story. And it, it really, you get the whole cross section of how rich this world is and, and ripe for the picking for, for a great crime or, or noir story, just at, at every angle that you take from the boxing world for, for whatever reason it is, it's, it's the perfect setting for a noir story. Right. 
Well, you mentioned a moment ago that you had co-written some novels with J.B. Cole. How did that pro- how did that uh, come about, and what's that process like for you that may be different from your solo novels? The uh, it's very different from probably most anyone else because uh, J.B. Her name's Jennifer. Uh, we've never met. Uh, and we've never even spoken on the phone at this point. And, you know, we've, we've written, uh, we, we've written and published two novels together. We've, we've written a third, uh, that, that is still unpublished, but the, it began because like I said, I was doing some work for the, uh, film noir foundation running some of their social media, uh, websites. And this is back when MySpace was actually a thing. And, uh, Jennifer contacted me through that MySpace page asking if she could link to that page from her author website because she wanted to support the Film Noir Foundation. I said, oh, of course, you know, please do. And I went to her site and I checked it out. And she had uh, one book published called The Deputy's Widow that is, you know, a, a 1940s set PI novel. Sounded right up my alley because uh, I'm, such, I'm such a fan of the old pulp style. So I supported a, a, a independent author and bought the book really liked it wrote her a note to say hey I, I really like this good job and uh you know told her that i wrote as well she asked to, to read something so i sent her a short story uh, of mine that has, has done that short story has gotten me a lot of places actually it, it, that short story ended up in uh, thuglet the great uh you know, online magazine and then got chosen and it was actually published in the, uh, million writers award, uh, best new online voices anthology. It's called ditch. But, uh, so she, she wrote me back and said, Hey, I really love this story. And it was her idea. She said, have you ever considered writing something with someone? And so we just decided to, to go for it. Cause she lives on the East coast. I live on the West coast. There was no harm, no foul. If it didn't work out, and so we just started exchanging ideas uh, all over email, and we sort of dove in and, and started writing. And we sort of, you know we split it up. It's two first person narratives. So I would write a chapter from my character's point of view, and then she would write a character from her uh, chapter from her character's point of view. And we would just trade back and forth, and and uh, you know watch the story evolve. Like you know we had an outline, but it w- it was just a great you know, moment of discovery when I would see a new chapter pop up in my inbox and I got to read that. And then that would maybe influence my next chapter a little bit. And it just went so smoothly. We said, this was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, and we were very fortunate to find uh, a small independent publisher uh, called second wind publishing, uh, picked up the first book and and then put out the sequel. Uh, it's, it's just been a great, great working relationship. And probably we both have agreed it probably works better because we don't see each other and we're not sitting in the same room and it's just it's been great and i hope to to keep doing it for a long time that's great that that's great well there seems to be a a thriving movement of new noir and crime writers uh, especially people who are doing things electronically or publishing in, in online magazines such as thug lit who are some of the other writers, even if they're not crime novelists, that, that you're reading now and excited about? Well, it, you're absolutely right. We are in, I think, in like a new noir renaissance that we haven't seen since the days of Black Mask and Dime Detective. It's It's been great. All these online journals and, and, and sites like Twist of Noir and, you know, Plots with Guns and things like that. Um, 
some of the writers that I've been reading lately uh, are on uh, Snub Nose Press, which is a, a indie press that I'm a part of. I actually I have a novella called Dig Two Graves uh, out with Snub Nose, and my short story collection, A Bouquet of Bullets, is out with Snub Nose. And uh, Brian Lindenmuth, who uh, is the publisher, and he's also the man behind Spine Tingler magazine online. He somehow uh, has suckered me into being art director for Snub Nose, so <laughs> I've I've been designing uh, the book covers, and Brian has such a great editorial eye and for picking picking stories that he wants to publish. So I've just been so steeped in all the different Snub Nose releases that we're just keep shooting out the door. Uh, and there's been some great stuff. Uh, you know, most recently there was a, a novella called Piggyback uh, by a guy named Tom Pitts, which is just a great, fun, dark noir ride. Uh, a book called The Subtle Arts of Brutality uh, by Ryan Sales. Uh, there's been some fantastic short story collections. The First Cut uh, by a guy named John Kenyon. Uh, Old School by a guy named Dan O'Shea. Uh, Keith Rawson, who's a, a writer that a lot of People in the online short story world know he's got two collections uh, out there through Snubnose, and Keith is just a great, a very very dark writer. To, you know, hold on to your hat when you read these things. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've, I've been really really steeped in uh, in the Snubnose press world, and I, de- I recommend anyone who likes dark stories and, and you know real gritty noir and you know and then there's also some some really different stuff you know brian the the great thing about indie presses is that you have the freedom to publish some stuff that you know has fallen through the cracks of of the big publishers and that's what brian was all about when he started snub nose uh and you know he he published uh, a thing called nothing matters that is it's a twenty thousand word noir poem uh by a guy named steve finbo and it's just it's one of those books that you read and it's it's so completely different. And you think this would never have found a life outside of <laughs> you know, ebook publishing and, and indie publishing. And it's it's so great to see works like that having having at least their small chance to get out there in the world. That, that's been great to see. That's great. Well, given your success to date with with publishing your fiction, what advice would you have for aspiring writers? <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, there's, there's enough of us out here clogging the drain. So if, if you're, you know, my take on aspiring writers, I think if you're an aspiring writer, you can just stay home because writers write and all, almost all the writers that I know who've who've been published and who've, who've written multiple books and, you know, from people who are still slugging it out in the indie world to, you know, big bestsellers, they all wrote first and then sought publishing later. They all would do it even if they weren't getting paid. Uh, they all have treated it like a craft and work to improve their craft and you know treat it very seriously and not just writing something because they think they're going to get rich because you're not going to get rich in, in this unless you're that, you know, less than 1%. You know, it's just like being a movie star. Like every actor in the world wants to be Tom Hanks and you're, it's just not going to happen. So if you're, if you're truly a writer, not, not aspiring. And like I say, it, this gets back to the same thing I was saying before about like the people who talk and talk about what they're writing, but probably never finish it and, and never follow through. 
So I, I think if you, if you want to be a writer, then sit down and start to write. And if you're getting it done and you're putting words on the page, then you can call yourself a writer. But I, I get very angry when people call themselves writers and they haven't finished anything. <laughs> you know, you, and it's not even that you need to be published. You don't need to be published. You don't need to have a big book contract, you know, but it, are you writing? Are you sit down? Are you putting words on the page? Are you working to get better every day? Then then you can be a writer and the publishing and, and getting your work out there and getting it in front of people that will come later. And if there is any like actual advice, it's it's just that it's, it's get your work out there, get it in front of people. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Don't sit on it. I mean, all the successes that I've had, which are, are still very minor and you know, I still have a long way to go. I have a lot of aspirations and I'm never satisfied with my own work. You know, everything that I've accomplished in a fairly short time has been all my own doing just in getting the work out there and getting it seen and, and taking every advantage and, and being nice to everyone that I meet in the industry who is willing to give me a hand up because so many people have been so good to me. So if someone is offering a hand up, I will take it and I will try to pay that forward and, and repay the favor. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about sitting down and just keep writing, keep writing. Cause I've got thousands and thousands of pages yet to be published. That's just waiting in the wings. So it's, it, it takes a lot of work to, to get even to the small, on top of the small hill where I am. So <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, what are you working on now? Oh, well, uh, I have plans for a sequel to the devil doesn't want me, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how many, uh, we sell and if the, if the public actually wants that, but, uh, th there are plans, uh, to, to continue this story. Uh, I, th I think I've, I think I know how to, how to do it and do it well. Um, but like I say, I've, I've got, uh, there are four other manuscripts that, uh, are sitting there waiting to, uh, to find their home. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a new novel right now that, uh, I, I write mostly standalones. Uh, I, I, I like stories where anything could happen and anybody could die on, on any particular page. So <laughs> I, I like to, to keep it unpredictable like that. Um, but yeah, just, I, I'm always working on something and, and more short stories and I've got outlines for, I think the next three or four novels. Right. Uh, there, there's never a shortage of ideas. <laughs> well, well, where can people find you online? Uh, well, I've, I've on my blog, uh, ericbeatner.blogspot.com, uh, is, uh, I try, I try to update that with, uh, links to all the short stories that you can read for free. Uh, I've got over 50 short stories online at various places that, uh, you can read totally for free. Um, and then obviously, you know, all, all my books uh, in, are on Amazon and, and and also for the Nook and come find me on Facebook and Twitter. I, I, I love to uh, love to talk to readers and love to interact. And it's that that's part of the fun is to be able to, at least in a virtual way, get out of my tiny little office here and, and actually talk to humans. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Eric Beatner, author of The Devil Doesn't Want Me, which is available as an ebook now. And I'll have links to that in the show notes. So you should definitely check it out and download it. So Eric, thanks for doing the interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a real pleasure. Sure. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.